Welcome to Bidia Snog's Definitive Guide to Capital Cities, an audio companion for the curious traveller. Narrated by me, Bidia Snog. London, a frenetic, kinetic living sculpture, an open gallery space full of fascinating exhibits dating back centuries. And I, Billy Snog, will be your guide. Sit back, stand up straight when I'm talking to you, and enjoy with me the many delights this splendiferous city has on display. Exhibit 7X, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. On the south bank of the River Thames is Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, home to Shakespeare's Globe. This world-famous dramatist, much loved by schooled children up and down the land, was, of course, best known in his day as a gifted erotic arts performer. The theatre is a life-size replica of the stage where Bill Shakespeare used to display his impressive crown jewels to an awed and incredulous audience. All that remains of this remarkable and remarkably lucky man is a single testicle preserved in amber. Go and see it. It's quite impressive. About the size of a tennis ball. Despite rumours, Shakespeare didn't have just one testicle. The other globe was sadly lost. If you really want to see his pickled penis, you'll have to visit his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon. And that concludes Exhibit 7X, Shakespeare's Globe Theatre. Exhibit 4J The Golden Boy of Pie Corner The Golden Boy of Pie Corner is a sadly neglected London landmark that could be found on the corner of Cock Street and Guildspur Lane. Commissioned and built in 1666, it is a memorial to the boy who helped save London from the Great Fire, started when a baker on Pudding Lane burnt his spotted dick. That's a pudding. As the fire ravaged through the city, it approached and threatened to engulf a popular pub, the Goat and Welshman. One of its regular patrons, Sir John Strawberry, exhorted his fellow drinkers to urinate on the fire from the roof and save the establishment. As the fire dimmed, Sir John hit upon a plan. He paid the publican's son to run from pub to pub and encourage the other drinkers to do the same. Soon the streets of London ran with urine and the golden boy marks the spot where the great fire stopped, beaten back by the golden flame retardant. The tradition of pub leavers urinating in the street, putting out imaginary fires, continues to this day. And that concludes Exhibit 4J, The Golden Boy of Pie Corner. Exhibit 8E, Number 10 Downing Street. This is the best known and most exclusive address in the whole of London. I have no idea why. It's a terraced house, 
the tenancy agreement is just four years and can only be renewed for another four. And then that's it. You are forcibly evicted. The neighbours are apparently always scheming to get you out in the interim. There are no decent shops nearby. The traffic on the mall is hellish. There are constant disruptions due to parades and the security is extremely overzealous. Why on earth would anyone would want to live there is beyond me. I wouldn't bother hanging around if I were you. This isn't the London exhibit you were looking for. Move along. Move along. And that concludes exhibit 8E, number 10 Downing Street. Exhibit 12G, The London Pigeon. You may have already noticed a mid-sized bird with grey plumage wandering the streets or congregating in wide open spaces. This is the famed London Pigeon. With their distinctive gait and mating call, the pigeon is synonymous with London life. But the bird actually originates from Egypt where it was worshipped in ancient times as a fertility god. Migrating pigeons still go to Egypt for their summer holidays. A solemn note of caution at this point. Do not, under any circumstances, approach a London pigeon. They are carnivorous beasts that hunt in packs and attack at a moment's notice. A London pigeon can smell fear from great distances and will flock to someone with the fear in large numbers very quickly. To try to offset regular attacks on humans in London, the Ministry of Pigeon Appeasement arranges the ceremonial feeding of the pigeons in Trafalgar Square. Each week, an elderly woman, selected via the National Lottery, is fed to the pigeons. The ceremony begins with the customary tossing of the breadcrumbs. The bread acts as an hors d'oeuvre for the beasts, wetting their appetite before the main course, much like chumming for sharks. Excited, the pigeons start to congregate around the old lady before one will attack, acting as the catalyst for a feeding frenzy. The London pigeon, much like its distant cousin, twice removed, the piranha, can strip a human to the bone in seconds. The sacrificial old hag will disappear in a flurry of beating wings, leaving just the dentures and a bag of mouldy crust. Most Londonites soon develop the ability to mask their fear of pigeons effectively, being able to act casual if one appears in their midst. If you see a pigeon nearby, do not panic. The official advice from the government is to keep calm and carry on. You may have seen the posters dotted around the city from the Ministry of Pigeon Appeasement. Do not make eye contact with a pigeon. Do not run or turn your back on one either. If a pigeon is displaying aggressive behaviour, bobbing its head up and down and puffing its chest, simply walk backwards slowly away from it. If you have bread on your person, drop it immediately. It may help to cause a diversion. And that concludes our guide to Exhibit 4R, The London Pigeon.
Exhibit 1H, Trafalgar Square. Trafalgar Square is home to the mortal remains of Lord Hilario Nelson, London's greatest avian expert or ornithologist. An avid bird watcher all his life, Lord Nelson could mimic the calls of over 12 different species. He spent decades analyzing the mating habits of blue tits and was a fervent campaigner for the rights of all birds to defecate anywhere they please, even on the heads of statues. Lord Nelson is best known as the world's foremost authority on the London pigeon. He was fearless in front of them despite several maulings, which cost him an arm, an eye and a testicle. On his last voyage abroad to protest against the Spanish and French trapping of migrating starlings, he was defecated on by an albatross near Trafalgar in the Mediterranean. Due to their size and diet, albatrosses excrete a large amount of toxic poo. As a result of the bird dropping, he contracted a rare disease and died on board his vessel, surrounded by his nearest and dearest. His last recorded words were, Blow me, Hardy, if that isn't a lesser spotted warbler. So far from land too. A bird fancier to the very end. In Lord Nelson's last will and testament, he stated that he didn't want to be buried underground. Instead, he wanted to be interred above ground to watch his beloved birds flying all over London. So they encased his corpse in a concrete and set him on top of a giant column, enabling him to watch over his feathered friends in perpetuity. His pet lions were still alive, so instead they cast life-size replicas of John, Paul, George and Bingo and set them at the base of his column. By golly, they're big beasts. The square was complemented by two enormous bird baths, with the fountains added a few years later. As discussed earlier, the ceremonial feeding of the pigeons also occurs at Trafalgar Square. The first official sacrifice was held in 1955 during the pigeon epidemic of 1955. I'm sure if Nord Wilson was alive today, he would approve of this enlightened policy of pigeon appeasement. And that concludes Exhibit 1H, Trafalgar Square. Exhibit 7M, Piccadilly Circus. Sadly, Piccadilly Circus no longer exists. The runaway success of the rival Oxford Circus forced Piccadilly Circus to close. But due to an oversight by the Ministry of Naming Things, the venue's name persists, and Piccadilly Circus is now a popular pickup joint, known by locals as Pickawilly Circus. People looking for a good time congregate beneath the statue at the centre of what was once the circus. If you can negotiate your way through this horny throng to get close enough to the statue, you will see that it is of a little man or a well-defined boy with wings firing a bow and arrow. Placed here in 1892, most people believe it to be Eros, the Greek god of fornication. Others insist he represents the Angel of Charity, who pricked bankers with arrows of conscience in ancient mythology. A third theory is that it represents the boy who famously shot Harold in the eye at the fancy dress party at Hastings in 1066. 
I don't subscribe to the latter as the boy is depicted virtually naked and records insist that the actual culprit was dressed as a Red Indian or a Native American. I will discuss the symbolic nature of London's many statues later. Today, the majority of people insist that the statue represents Eros, and single people and lonely hearts will chant a prayer to Eros before sitting beneath his wings to speed date. One of the most oft-chanted prayers is as follows. Grant me someone, O Eros, with whom I can play, because I'm feeling quite hungry today. Be they man, woman, reptile or beast, grant me, O Eros, an orgasm-laced feast. Sitting in the shadows of Eros's wings, you will notice the surrounding sponsored illuminations. Hard not to, really. They act as unforgiving lights, so ugly people can't hide their blemishes and there are no embarrassing revelations in the morning, as there can be an after an encounter in a nightclub. One appreciates that a lonely person never feels more alone than in a city. So if you are single and open to a no-strings-attached empty sexual liaison, by all means head to Piccadilly Circus. Go find yourself another sad, lonely person to commiserate with. But don't forget to say a prayer to Eros before you do, or you might end up with a beastly, ungrateful old trollop, like my ex-wife. And that ends Exhibit 7M, Piccadilly Circus. Exhibit 3Q, The Statues of London As you wander aimlessly through the streets of London, if you have functioning eyes, you will notice the many statues that litter the city. There are statues of dead people and their pets everywhere. Kings, comedians, explorers, scientists, soldiers, pet lions, even women. Statues are commissioned for varying reasons, mostly to commemorate a deceased Londonite's life and will be cast in an array of materials, including gold, bronze, marble, aluminium, stone and paper mache. The particular pose in which the statue is cast is not chosen on the whim of the person who made them. On the contrary, there is a deliberate symbolism to each and every posture, gesture and adornment. The poses they adopt have a special meaning that informs the viewer about their lives, as most people are too lazy to read the inscriptions. Allow me to enlighten you. Are you near a statue? No? Then find one. Are you near a statue? Yes? Good. If the statue is standing, it means the person depicted was well known for doing something while standing. Sitting means they were well known for doing something while seated, like thinking of a great invention whilst on the toilet. If they are wearing fancy dress, it means they were close to the German royal family, who are likely to have commissioned a statue in return for some task they performed, like invading another country. If the statue is holding a sword in his right hand, then he was, at some point in his life, imprisoned for duelling. Left hand means it was for exposing himself in public. 
If the statue is pointing, he was an important man, and quite bossy. Scratching his left armpit means he was a socialist. Scratching his right armpit, he was anti-socialist. Saluting means he was a spineless lickspittle who sucked up to authority. Holding a book indicates that the person could read books. Bending over denotes a greatness achieved despite having a debilitating condition, like ginger hair. Wearing a crown means that they achieved the highest position in a profession that required wearing a crown. Wearing a dress indicates they were most likely a woman. Wearing a wig means they were bald. Wearing a suit of armor indicates they were persecuted for their beliefs, suffering the slings and arrows of criticism for believing in something deemed profane at the time, like the world is oblong, or wearing socks inside sandals. If the statue is of a man riding a horse, it means they achieved great things on the backs of working class, like an industrialist or a politician. The legs of the horse are significant too. In particular, how many of them are raised? One leg e equals one dutiful wife. Two equals divorced and remarried. Three equals a divorce, an extramarital affair, and a mistress. Four legs up in the air indicate that he was unmarried and rumored to like boys. If the horse is riding the man, it means it's anyone's guess what he got up to in his spare time. If the man's statue has his own leg raised, it means he was an entertainer of some sort. Left leg indicates he was popular cabaret act. If the right leg is up, he was an unpopular cabaret act who had friends in high places. If his legs are crossed, he was incontinent. If the statue is raised on a plinth, it indicates the person was deficient in stature, and the plinth gives them the symbolic boost up for the afterlife. Lord Nelson, for example, was three feet two and had one leg shorter than the other. And that concludes our guide to Exhibit Three Q: the Statues of London. Exhibit 1G, the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. The Houses of Parliament is London's most popular entertainment venue, a rival in size to Madison Square Garden in New York. The Houses of Parliament were originally called the Palaces of Westminster, but renamed in 1974 in honor of Parliament, the influential funk band who enjoyed the longest residency of any act, including one night when it enjoyed 69 encores. Initially a clown training college then vaudeville theatre, the Houses of Parliament is now best known for its stand-up comedy. Comedians from across England will gather to test their skills in front of their peers. The first stage in comedy in Parliament is the House of Commons. A comedian will petition the Speaker of the House to try his or her stand-up routine by waving a piece of paper containing their jokes. The speaker will select one who will then stand and deliver their best lines. If the other comedians like what they're hearing, they will chant, "Hear, hear!" 
After years of successful hearings, a comedian will then be ushered into the House of Lords, where they get to don fancy dress, courtesy of the Vinza family, and judge the merits of new jokes proposed by members of the House of Commons. Did you notice the tall upright structure attached to the Parliament building with a big watch strapped to each side of the tower? I thought you might have. This is known as Big Ben. Why, you ask? Well, in 1982, members of the House of Commons decided to hold a fundraiser for the retirement of Benjamin Blagg, a highly respected comedian. Respected not only because of his repertoire of one-liners and studious timekeeping, but also because he had huge testicles. Benjamin's jokes and gonads were so popular that the fundraiser managed to accrue a massive sum, enough for 50 gold carriage clocks. When Benjamin died of an impacted colon the day before the retirement party, parliamentarians decided to sell the clocks and reinvest the money in something more worthwhile than just giving it to his four wives and various children to squabble over. They paid for the erection of this magnificent monument instead. To this day, comedians in the House of Commons will raise a large glass of sherry in Big Ben's honour when the clock strikes the hour. Several years later, Benjamin Blagg's younger brother, also named Ben, and also a comedian, died of an aneurysm after hearing a joke about a nun who got a left breast caught in a mangle. Again, a fundraiser was held, but sadly it failed to muster anywhere near the same amount. As a result, Little Ben was commissioned and constructed on Victoria Street in Westminster. It's still there today, but you might miss it, as it is only 12 feet tall and, as they couldn't afford a big bell, the hourly chime is replicated by a small man with a deep voice secreted away inside the clock tower. And that concludes our guide to Exhibit 1G, the Houses of Parliament and Big Ben. Exhibit 6X, the City of London. The City of London, not to be confused with the actual City of London, is Europe's largest open prison, comprising of a square mile of correctional facilities. Thieves, who persistently steal from the general public and are sure to offend again, hence the term banker, are housed here. An inmate of this city within a city is recognisable by his pinstripe overalls and inverted noose around his neck. The tradition of inmates wearing bowler hats was discontinued in the 1970s. You are free to walk around the square mile, but keep your belongings close to you at all times. The inmates here are expert thieves and won't be able to resist the temptation to filch from a member of the public if they think they can get away with it. If you are targeted by a banker, you won't notice the loss of valuable items until it's too late. Most inmates are housed at the London Stock Exchange, so named because criminals were, until recently, traditionally placed in stocks, where they would be pelted with stones or phyllo pastry. Now prisoners suffer the lesser indignity of having to play sanctioned games like liar's poker and pretend casino gambling to take their minds off committing serious crimes. 
In Pretend Casino, inmates buy and sell meaningless shares or stocks using other people's money and predict whether or not the stock will be higher or lower in number at the end of each day. This seemingly tedious game can occupy inmates for hours on end. And this concludes Exhibit 6X, The City of London. We'll be right back after these words. Hey there, do you like heartburn? No! Can you cope with lower back pain? No, 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 no. Can you process the existential dread of a fleeting meaningless existence? No! Of course not. That's why you need Novocaine. Novocaine can cause an allergic reaction, including difficulty of breathing, swelling of lips, tongue, face, hives, chest pain, or slow irregular heartbeats, dizziness or drowsiness, anxiety or restlessness, nausea or vomiting, trembling, shaking, convulsions, or diarrhea. Exhibit 3W, Buckingham Palace. Built in 1699, Buckingham Palace is London's largest homeless hostel, run by the female philanthropist Elizabeth Vinzer, affectionately known as the Queen of All England. She also runs accommodation in Balmoral, Scotland, and of course, Vinzer Castle, which changed its name from Saxon Coburg Bradfurst Winkel in her honour. Mrs. Vinzer can trace her family all the way back to the Hasselhoss of Germany and the Normans of France. In 1065, Bill Norman emigrated to England from France after being invited over by Ethelred the Not-Quite-Ready to help run his fancy dress rental company. After a children's party mishap in Hastings, when Ethelred's eldest son, Harold, got a Native American arrow stuck in his eye, the Normans took over the running of the business, headquartered in the Tower of London, and have been in England ever since. Bill Norman's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-granddaughter, Victoria, married Prince Helmut Hasselhoff von Winzer, and the family we know and love today was born. The continued success of the Fancy Dress franchise has led to the family being the wealthiest and most prominent of all England. Windsor family birthdays, weddings and funerals are celebrated nationwide and will attract large crowds of onlookers. Much like the Tower of London, Buckingham Palace has its own special ceremonial staff. You can see them parading outside the hostel, just as the Tower of London has its unique fancy dress wearing attendants, ironically known as beef eaters, due to the Tower's vegetarian only hiring policy, so Buckingham Palace has the Coldstream Guards. The Coldstreams wear woolen long johns to ward off cold drafts, as well as the distinctive pith helmets weaved together from the pubic hairs of moles. Every hour, the guards will select a new outfit to wear, normally slipping into something a little bit more comfortable, as the formal long johns and mole pubic hair helmets can get itchy after a while. This is called the changing of the guard. Lift your head and look at the flagpole above the palace. Is there a flag fluttering on it? If the hostel is full, a flag will be raised above the palace to indicate that there is no more room in the inn and that vagrants should look elsewhere. Like Lambeth Palace or Harrods and Knightsbridge above the indoor market. And that concludes Exhibit 3W, Buckingham Palace.
Exhibit 6L, the Albert Memorial. Located in Jekyll and Hyde Park, this is the memorial to Prince Albert, who was a much-loved man, despite being German. Prince Albert was a pioneer of his age and is best known today as the inventor and advocate of body piercings. Although the stigma of tattoos being the preserve of sailors and fishermen who missed their mothers took decades to change, piercings were popular in London as early as the 18th century, all thanks to Albert. It all started after a horse riding accident, when Albert managed to impale a spur through one earlobe. Despite the pain and the blood, he considered his new adornment to be quite fetching and commissioned an ironmonger to work on small trinkets that could be attached to his body. When he attended the royal opening of Crystal Palace with a metal spike through his nasal septum, it caused a sensation, and soon the upper classes were clamouring to get parts of their face and lower anatomy pierced with all manner of adornments, from knitting needles to cowbells. So when your sister or daughter decides to have a belly button or clitoris complemented by a silver ring, you have Prince Albert to thank. And that concludes Exhibit 6L, the Albert Memorial. Exhibit 3P, Tower Bridge. Tower Bridge is a popular vantage point from which to watch the passing flotsam and jetsam of the River Thames. So named because of the two distinctive towers built at each end and the fact that it is next door to the Tower of London, which should be called the Towers of London, but the S dropped off the sign and hasn't been fixed. A note of caution when river watching on Tower Bridge, it can split into two at a moment's notice and has caught out many an unwary tourist. The two separate sections of the bridge, or bascules, can be raised by 90 degrees in just seconds. The bridge was built in 1817, but the bascules were added later at a ceremonial display designed to salute the boatloads of homosexualian immigrants arriving in London to escape persecution. Now the lifting of the bascules is employed more as a tourist deterrent. The bridge master will note the number of tourists on the bridge and if the amount exceeds the weight limit or if he thinks the number may constitute a health and safety hazard, he will raise the bridge to displace them. So before walking onto Tower Bridge, count the number of tourists already there. Twelve tourists or four Americans, Americans being significantly heavier than the average tourist, is the maximum number allowed on the bridge at any time. And that concludes Exhibit 3P, Tower Bridge. Exhibit 2T, The Tower of London. Built in 1092, the Tower of London, or Towers of London as it should be known but isn't, was the original home to the Norman family, who became, through marriage and interbreeding, the Vinza family. Headquarters of the Vinza family dress corporation, the Tower of London is open to the public eight days a week. Visitors are allowed to stare at, but not touch, some of the elaborate fancy dress outfits the family has rented out over the years. 
some of which are over a thousand years old and reasonably well preserved due to the pioneering mothball treatment. As I have already discussed, the history of the Vinza family at great length, I will not repeat myself here. For more information on the actual Tower of London, actually go to the Tower of London, if you must, and ask for a beef heater, but not on their lunch break. That would be unwise. And that concludes Exhibit 2T, The Tower of London. Exhibit 7G, The London Bus. The London Bus, also known as Dubal's Decker, was designed by Sir David Dubal circa 1490 and is a mode of public transport unique to the city. Note the distinctive colour, rectal thermometer red. The same colour is used for the city's letterboxes, as well as the gradually dwindling number of multi-purpose telephone urinal-slash-prostitute notice boards seen on the city's streets. It is commonly thought that red, traditionally denoting passivity and peace, was chosen to enable German bombers during the Blitz of 1922 to better identify the poor, who were unable to afford their own horses or get a piggyback ride from their valet. An alternative theory is that there was a surplus of paint, as government officials had just de discontinued the red coat as the uniform of choice for the nation's armed forces, and had started ordering eggshell blue instead. Wait for a bus at a bus stop. You will find them on most streets. A bus stop has a totem pole with the numbers on it and a shelter beside it. This is provided so cockneys can congregate without fear of being pelted with eggs and eels by residents in high-rise buildings. Cockneys are an endangered and sadly persecuted ethnic minority in London. Descendants from the early Roman settlers who gave the city its name, Londominium Nomnom, cockneys are so called because of a genetic ability to commune with chickens. A cockney is often seen with a male chicken perched on his knee, hence the egg pelting. It is unclear why residents throw eels at cockneys. Maybe it's because they are also quite slimy. Rumours that the epithet cockney was bestowed on its ethnic group due to the males being well endowed has been disproved by female scientists. You will be expected to queue at the bus stop. A queue is an inviolable line of people formed at most places where crowds gather, with the tallest at the front and the smallest at the back. When a bus stops, do not get on the bus until the tallest person in front of you has done so. If you do, you will be immediately singled out for an ancient curse where a Londonite pretends to suck your soul through their teeth. This is known as tutting. Want to know more about queuing? For more information about this peculiar London pastime, refer to Exhibit 8H, The London Queue. The London bus has two or three doors on the left-hand side. The large doors at the centre of the bus are for exit only. 
Do not enter the bus via these doors. Enter the bus instead using the door at the front. Wait until it is open. Can you see the driver sitting behind the large steering wheel? Do not try to make eye contact or say anything to them, especially not to clarify the direction of the bus's going or about the cost of the actual journey. Remember, the perspex barrier is there for your protection. You should have a credit card size card that is shaped like a card. This is called an Oyster card. The name Oyster was chosen after a costly 10-year consultation process between the people of London, the Mayor of London and consultant wordologists failed to achieve a consensus over the proposed names. The proposed names were Travel Card, My Personal Travel Card, Card Accessing Travel for Seeing Stuff in the City, better known by the acronym CATSSC, and Card for Underground Nicely Travelling. The last was rejected for an obvious reason. You don't just travel underground in London. The name was instead picked out of a top hat by a pearly queen. That's not another name for the Queen of England, but the name for an expert diver who fishes for pearls in the River Thames. Did you know women in London can hold their breath for more than two minutes longer than the average male? If you are not a woman from London, ask one to show you and time them. So, do you have an Oyster card? Do you have it? Do you? The driver is waiting. If you do have an Oyster card, hold it up to the driver, then press it on the yellow reader facing you on the side of the driver's cage. Did the reader bleep and a green light flash? If the answer is yes, your Oyster card has been shucked, as it is popularly termed, and you may now proceed to, to the bus. So, do you have an Oyster card? Do you have it? Do you? The driver is waiting. If you do have an Oyster card, hold it up to the driver, then press it on the yellow reader facing you on the side of the driver's cage. Did the reader bleep and a green light flash? If the answer is yes, your Oyster card has been shucked as it is popularly termed, and you may now proceed onto the bus. Look at the bus. Look at it. Have you noticed anything unusual? Yes, that's right, the London bus's unique two-tier structure. It enables small people to appreciate what it's like to be not small, while moving at previously unimaginable speeds. Travellers on the upper deck are also able to note the receding hairlines of pedestrians and see through first-floor windows of unsuspecting naked trombonists on the bus's route. Note the number of cameras dotted about the bus. More on London's extensive surveillance system later. There is a strong seating hierarchy on a London bus. 
The old, infirm, pregnant and the obese are required by law to stay close to the driver on the front lower section. If you do not fall into this category, take the stairs to the upper section. Do not, irrespective of how busy the bus is, give in to the temptation to sit at the front two seats on the upper deck. So you can pretend that you are a driver of the bus with an imaginary wheel that is able to be driven from the upper deck. These front seats are exclusively for mothers with children who suffer attention deficit hyperactive dangerousness. If you do sit at the front, you will be reminded loudly of your mistake by a mother through conversations with a now apoplectic child. The mother will make less than subtle references to your mistake and will encourage the child to make a scene until you vacate your seat. Also resist the temptation to sit on the seats located at the rear of the bus. This is the preserve of London's youth. Notably children going to and from or, or absconding from educational or correctional facilities. Note the uniforms with badges and irregularly arranged ties. There is a reason for this. As a child passes through London's education system, so the colours and designs change to denote levels of achievement. For example, the colour of the blazer denotes daily fizzy drink consumption. The badges on the blazers represent killing proficiency in online warfare simulations. In particular, a badger in one quadrant of the badge signifies proficiency at sniper headshots. Ties worn indicate the amount of empty fried chicken containers a pupil has managed to discard on the floor on an average day. The length, thinness and amount of stripes on the tie also correspond to the varying abilities the pupil has at discarding their rubbish and the proximity of said rubbish to an actual waste receptacle or litter bin as is also known. The closer to the bin the drop, the greater the achievement. Note the loud histrionic behaviour, the swearing and mangled syntax. Note also the tossing of potato chips and the playing of the latest sharp music through small speakers on mobile phones at a volume that enables the rest of the commuters to hear. This performance is arranged by and laid on for free by the Fiat City's parents to entertain commuters on an otherwise dull journey through London. If you are lucky enough to be present on the bus during such a performance, you are not required to donate money. In fact, you should avoid any interaction with the performers lest you put them off their stride. You are instead expected to keep staring straight ahead and to pretend that they don't exist. Feedback for the performers can be arranged at a later date on various street corners. The performers will then have changed into more casual clothing, identifiable by their expensive brand running shoes and hooded tops. Donations are possible in the form of mobile phones or bank cards. In return, you will receive a display of London kitchenware. Hugging the performer is optional. When on the upper deck of a bus, try to sit somewhere in the middle. Do not sit on the left-hand side unless you are left-handed. Is there someone on a phone nearby? Most likely there is. Londoners like to take the opportunity when on buses to conduct and work 
or non-work-related discussions with people not on the bus. Public transport is so called because Londoners are expected to share with the public the vagaries of their lives while being transported. The sound level of the discussion is in direct disproportion to the importance of the phone call. The more banal the subject, the louder the projected voice. Does a woman need to add another meeting to the seven meetings they are already having that day via the medium of telephony? When they are on a bus, they do. Did a man have an uneventful evening with a friend the night before? Does that man need to remind the other man how uneventful that evening was? Not unless they're on a bus. Look out the window. Observe all the Londonites talking on their phones or looking at them. This is to avoid eye contact with other walkers. It is a punishable, punishable offence to make eye contact with a member of public in London for longer than 0.7 seconds. The surveillance cameras will time any pedestrian eye contact, so be careful when on foot through the city. More on London Surveillance Society later. When you are near your destination, you will need to indicate to the bus driver that he or she needs to stop to let you disembark. Can you see the buttons situated on the vertical poles by the seats? It should have the word STOP written on it. This is not a warning for you to stop picking your nose, but indicates that this is how you get off the bus. When you are ready, press the button. Use a finger. Don't be afraid, it's there for you to use. The button, that is. However, be aware that the timing of the button press is important, as competition between Londonites for the title of original presser of the button on the bus is fierce. Were you the first? Did a bell sound and a sign at the front say, bus stopping just flash? No. You must press the button six times or the bus will not stop for you. Is the bus stopping now? Good. Head down to the ground floor using the steps provided. The elderly, pregnant and obese situated in the lower tier will be waiting for you to get off first. They should be standing as the young and able-bodied in London get seat priority. See Exhibit 3G, the London Underground. Step off the bus slowly, leading with your right foot. You have now exited the bus. You may wave off the bus if you wish as it departs. And that concludes Exhibit 6F, the London bus. Exhibit 7D, the London queue. The London queue was invented by Lord Horatio Montague in 1196 to alleviate crowding and general confusion at major gatherings, like banker stonings. Queues can form very quickly and at a moment's notice. Londonites are often compelled to join a queue even if they are unaware what the queue is for. To join a queue, you must first need a permit, which you can obtain from the Ministry of Population Control. If there is a queue to apply for a queuing permit, 
go instead to the London Mayor's Office, located in what is affectionately known by Londonites as the Artichoke, or the Anal Plug. There, you can obtain a provisional queuing license valid for four weeks. They will supply you with a badge with the letter Q on it. You can then join a queue, but only accompanied by someone taller than you who still has their own hair. If you are unable to obtain a permit or a provisional queuing license, you may observe a queue from a safe distance. Try one by a cash point machine. Be wary, though, of standing next to someone else, as a queue might subsequently form without warning and could result in arrest for not having an official permit. And then concludes our guide to Exhibit 1A, the London Queue. Exhibit 10V, the London Cab. The London Cab, or Black Cab, was invented by the third Duke of Cabston in 1907. There was a shortage of horses in the London borough of Capston at the time, especially after 11pm, so the Duke arranged for ex-soldiers, mostly from his archery brigade, to transport the nobility around the city in off-duty hearses, as no one is buried in London after 11. After complaints about the cramped and often odorous nature of the coffins, the hearses were modified and the black cab as we know it today was born. The cab drivers, affectionately referred to as wankers, are no longer formed of ex-servicemen but are mostly from the persecuted Cockney community or recently released patients from Barking Asylum. Refer to Exhibit 3N, the London Underground, for more on Barking Asylum. Working in a black cab is the first stage of rehabilitation for a Barking patient and Londonites will hail cabs to show their support for this Care in the Community program. Before becoming a London cab driver, all cabbies are required to pass the knowledge. This is to ensure that they know enough about the world in order to enlighten their passenger in the short space of time afforded by the requested journey. The knowledge is a multiple choice exam and is searching questions like in five minutes, detail the current government's immigration policy, listing its flaws. And, what are the mating habits of the Madagascan sloth? And, in a two-part question, explain the iniquities of Western capitalism and its relationship to the perennial failings of the national football team. To hail a cab, simply raise one arm in the air, ball your fist, then extend your index and middle finger. Wave the arm back and forth and shout WANKER as you do so. Repeat the process until a cab stops for you. Note that the cab will not stop unless an orange light on the front of the vehicle is off and it is occupied with another paying passenger. A black cabbie will only provide a lecture if there is more than one passenger in the vehicle. If you are from homosexualia, you may not be taken to where you want to go. This is referred to among the black cab community as not going south of the river. Although the government is cracking down on discrimination against people from this nation, prejudice sadly prevails. 
And that concludes our guide to Exhibit 6F, the London Cab. Exhibit 9O, the London Surveillance System. You may not have noticed, because you are not that observant, but wherever you go in London, you are being watched. Look around you now. There is likely to be a camera looking right at you. Unless you are in a toilet cubicle, that is. Surveillance cameras in toilets were discontinued after protests from the Incontinence Society. If you are in a toilet cubicle, please pause a recording. I am not comfortable talking to you inside a toilet. The London surveillance system was introduced in 1953 after a spate of thefts plagued the city. Housewives up and down London were losing their undergarments from off-washing lines and started to erect cameras on top of washing poles to catch the culprits. Soon, cameras began to sprout up everywhere. Cameras to spot who left the toilet seat up, cameras to catch out miscreants chewing gum in public, and so on. The Ministry of Plans devised a plan to connect all of the cameras to a city-wide system of surveillance. Due to the controversial nature of the plan, the Mayor of London started a public consultation process and then put it to a city-wide vote. Londonites overwhelmingly voted in favour, and CCTV, or Catching Criminals on Television, was born. CCTV today is used to monitor all sorts of improper behaviour, from irregular queuing to prolonged eye contact or wearing a baseball cap in public space. Every camera, be it on a street corner or inside a bus or a shop, is controlled by a watcher, also known as a nosy Parker, named after Saint Nostril Parker, the patron saint of surveillance. There is a stringent employment process to avoid abuse of the surveillance system and to ensure only the most observant watchers are employed. As such, the surveillance community is normally drawn from retired traffic wardens, too obese to walk, or women over the age of 60 with net curtains. A nosy Parker is constantly on the lookout for improper behaviour by Londonites. A Londonite behaving improperly is known in surveillance circles as a gimp. All footage from CCTV cameras are relayed to the nosy Parkers in one location, Gimp Catcher Headquarters, or GCHQ. Since the inception of CCTV linked to GCHQ, there is no recorded crime in the city whatsoever, although the odd pair of knickers do still go missing off washing lines. And that concludes our guide to Exhibit 6F, the London Surveillance System. Exhibit 9A, the River Thames. Sweet Thames, run softly till I end my song. Sweet Thames, run softly, for I speak not loud or long. So the poem by T.S. Eliot goes. Through a city so grey, under a dusk so orange, what captivates me? Is it her clams or a flange? So the poem by A.J. Snood goes. 
Indeed, many poems and books have been written eulogising this graceful, slow-moving receptacle for shopping trolleys and nuclear waste. The Thames is as integral a part of London as dubstepping in the park and spaghetti vindaloo. But the Thames is not technically a river, or an estuary, or even a tributary. It's a canal, dug in 1777. It was built, or dug, ostensibly to ensure river traffic could sail right into town to deliver more raw materials and delicacies from the pillaged colonies, like canaries from the Canary Islands, or hamburgers from New England. But if truth be known, it was devised more to act as a natural barrier, or water buffer, between the warring northern and southern city dwellers. You may or may not have heard of the north-south divide where you come from, but I have. Before the Thames was constructed, the city was in constant turmoil. North Londoners hated South Londoners, and the feeling was mutual. The streets were ablaze with flaming Bic lighters as the two factions roamed the streets at night seeking out their compass-defined foes. Then an inventor, Sir Timothy Thames, came up with an ingenious solution to separate the two without having to construct a wall, as the city was short of bricks. He proposed expanding the open sewer that ran across the city to create a natural barrier, a linear moat, if you will. A South Londoner himself, he was embroiled in a messy, fractious marriage. Sir Timothy wanted the separation from his wife, a North Londoner, to be more significant than just moving her to separate bedrooms. Divorce was illegal in those days. And ensure she could not pilfer the silverware. The government immediately saw the merits of his proposal and employed hundreds of cockneys to undertake the digging, telling them that a hoard of pirate treasure was buried somewhere in the vicinity of the open sewer. The Thames barrier was dug in just six weeks and any Londoners on the wrong side of the divide had to move with immediate effect. It's not as straight as had originally been planned, but the Thames has, to a large extent, mollified the two factions. A degree of enmity does still exist, however, and at low tide you can still see Northerners and Southerners flocking to the banks on either side of the river to hurl insults at each other, as well as stray cats with catapults. To further neuter discrimination, the symbolic north-south dividing line was moved to an industrial theme park near Watford by the Ministry of Maps. Watford is the name for a small provincial backwater near Scotland that you need not know too much about. Suffice to say, it is best known as a retirement community for popular cabaret acts, including Cinnamon Spice of Spice Girl Infamy and Elton John of Elton John. Many taxi drivers come from North London, and that is why so few of them will go south of the river in the evenings, fearing reprisals. As I've mentioned previously, the phrase not going south of the river can also be taken figuratively. The cab driver may suspect the passenger is a homosexualian immigrant, someone who goes south of the river. Therefore, not going south of the river is Cockney cabbie code for refusing to transport someone from homosexualia. Sadly, despite the best efforts of the Ministry for being nice to other people despite their appearance, this discrimination against homosexualians and more importantly South Londoners still persists to this day.
To best appreciate the Thames, you can commandeer one of the many water taxis that ply their trade up and down the river. After all, a water cabbie can't tell you they're not going south of the river, can they? Just don't ask them to carry on to France, as, although tempting, the journey would soon stack up on the meter, and Cockneys don't like the French because of their abdominal treatment of chickens. Alternatively, you can simply walk over one of the many bridges provided, one of which, Tower Bridge, I have talked about in a previous section. And that concludes Exhibit 9A, The River Thames. Exhibit 5N, The London Underground. The London Underground is so called because the mode of transport, a train, goes mostly under the ground, underneath London town. Although there are parts where the underground goes overground and extends as far as Wales, it is still always called the London Underground. The London Underground is also known as the Tube. This is because travelling on the underground makes Londonites feel like they are being squeezed through a tube, much like toothpaste or tomato puree. The London Underground was first commissioned to transport immigrants newly arrived from homosexualia. Consorting with homosexualians was outlawed, but they needed to travel too, so the plan was to devise a means of transporting them out of sight of polite society. Where better than underground, government scientists thought. And lo, the London Underground was dug. This heinous, pernicious discrimination soon generated uproar from normal, upstanding, overground-dwelling Londonites, who felt it unfair that only homosexualians got to travel by this novel means. And they began protesting in earnest outside stations, demanding equal rights. Before long, Parliament had passed the Back Passage Act of 1810. From that day on, the tube was open to use for all. Are you ready to go down into the London Underground? Excellent. First of all, find the nearest underground station using a map. A map. Alternatively, grab a Londonite and ask them where the nearest station is. You need to physically hold on to them as you ask, or they will try to escape without replying. When you reach a station, commonly referred to as the coalface, walk inside. Before going any further, you need to consult the map of the London Underground provided. One should be stuck onto a wall inside the station. The London Underground map lists the name of the stations you can visit on your journey on the London Underground. Pretty, isn't it? Pretty ingenious too. The design was designed by a designer, Sir Harry Beck, who was inspired by his former career as a bomb disposal expert. Sir Harry was the leading authority on the inner workings and circuitry of the doodlebug bomb that was fired at London by the French during the Spritz of 1932. The map shows the depth at which various train lines run. The lines at the top are nearest to the surface. The ones at the bottom are the deepest lying tunnels. 
The various lines are color-coded to represent the pressure at which the train will be subjected to at various stages of the journey. As you will notice, a section of the River Thames also runs underground, which is then diverted to a reservoir in Wales. This reservoir supplies the capital's fountain water. If this is your first time on the London Underground, may I suggest starting with a line with a more gradual descent, like the Metropolitan or District, before moving on to the more testing Northern or Victoria lines. If you dive straight in, you may get the bends, a debilitating condition that causes the curvature of the penis. It afflicts 40% of Londonites. If you do not have a penis, then count yourself lucky, at least in this instance. More on tube lines and tube stations later. Before you can go down into the underground, you need to pass through the London barrier. Do you have an Oyster card? Refer to Exhibit 3E, the London bus, for more on the Oyster card. If you have one, press your card on the yellow reader on top of one of the London barriers. The barrier should open to let you through. Clever, isn't it? The London barrier was conceived by Alan Turing, a brilliant mathematician and homosexualian immigrant. You may know him better for the invention of the Turin Shroud, the personalised duvet cover. Hired by the Ministry for Underground Affairs, Turin devised a simple algorithm that allows the car to talk to the barrier and a fee for travel agreed upon. The amount deducted, or shucked, from your Oyster card is never the same, even if it is for the exact same journey. The fare is determined by a plethora of variables, including time of day, weather conditions above ground, number of people who have touched the reader in the last five minutes, the current share price on the London Stock Exchange, affectionately known as Tootsie, the price of milk, how quickly and how hard you touched your card to the reader, whether it was a slap or more of a stroke, the cleanliness of your card, and so on. All these variables and more are included in the bartering process between the barrier and your Oyster card before a sum is agreed upon and you are let through. All this is magically conducted in Xanoseconds. Are you through? Magic! Now proceed to the moving stairs. The ones that are moving in a downward direction are preferable. These are known as escalators. The name originates from a catchphrase from the popular New Zealand comedian Chips Fushman. Always getting into hilarious scrapes, Chips' catchphrase was I'll ask you later, said in his hilarious Kiwi accent. In a well-known and often recited scene in the movie Chips on the London Underground, Chips is walking down the upward moving stairs. He asks another commuter if, by using the London Underground, he will become a homosexualian. When he is aware of people staring at him, he adds, I'll ask you later. And the name stuck. But I digress. By all means, proceed down the downwards escalator. Keep to the left at all times. Pick an empty step and stand on it. Do not try to be clever and walk down the steps. This is only attempted by expert commuters. When you are safely at the bottom, you now have a choice. You can travel left on the underground 
or right. Which will it be? It is entirely up to you. But people of wealth and status tend to take the left travelling train. Can you see the platform? This is where the commuters gather to be picked up by the train. Once on the platform, stand as close to the edge as possible. So you will be one of the first commuters to get on the train. In order to achieve this, stand in front of the yellow line. You may hear a voice over the tannoy state that you should stand behind the yellow line. They're not talking to you. It's an instruction to Londonites who have been convicted of cowardice when confronted by a pigeon. More on the London pigeon later. Unless you are a convicted coward, ignore the announcement. Is a train coming soon? Good. Wait until the train comes to a complete stop and the doors open before entering a train. Find a seat and sit down. If none is available, ask an elderly person or a pregnant woman to vacate their seat for you. In London, these types of people are obliged by law to offer their seat and stand if none is available. Once you have acclimatized yourself to the London Underground, you may try using the Northern Line. The Northern Line is the oldest part of the London Underground and is indicated on the London Underground map by a black line running vertically along the map. Dug in 1739, using specially trained moles to tunnel underneath the city, the Northern Line was the first underground train line in the world to transport actual people. You can still smell the pipe smoke and see the ancient graffiti. A Northern Line train carriage is made from old submarines. These were introduced after the War of 1912, captured from the Italians, who'd like to see where they were going underwater. Are there people on the train? That's a good sign. If there are so many that you have to stand, that's an even better sign. It means that this is a reliable tube train. Trains are becoming less reliable due to a shortage of wheels, so people will wait for the older, more reliable stock, indicated normally by the LCD display on the platform. Cockfosters trains are especially good. Londonites like to crowd together to keep warm. It can get terribly cold on a tube train due to the depth the trains dive to, especially the Northern Line. So prepare to have your personal space invaded and physical touching to commence at any time. If you're feeling cold, simply hug a fellow commuter. They will appreciate the sharing of warmth. The Train Driver Occasionally, you will hear announcements over the train's tannoy or intercom. This is the driver telling you about his life. The tone and pitch of the delivery may confuse you. Don't worry if English is not your first language and you can't understand what they're saying. Not even Londonites can. That's because the Ministry of Underground Affairs has a positive discriminatory policy of hiring manic depressives with speech impediments. This enables those with mental illnesses to talk drivel as they drive and express themselves freely without fear of censure by the general populace. Notice the spring-mounted handles hanging down from the ceiling. They are called dongles. Grip a dangling dongle with the right hand. Notice your posture and gesture while holding the dangling dongle. 
The dongles were a primitive attempt by the Ministry of Propaganda to boost the war effort against the Nazi German Empire. This dongle allowed Londonites to appreciate what it would be like if the Nazis occupied the city. In Germany, Nazi salutes were expected on public transport at all times, and to avoid falling over or lifting both arms, thus unnecessarily exposing both sweaty armpits, strategically placed handles were inserted into the ceilings of trams. This enabled commuters to salute without fear of injury or social embarrassment. If a dongle is free, grab one with your right hand. Now say, Sieg Heil! Feel the evil. Feel the terror. Works, doesn't it? Don't wet yourself. And don't forget to disinfect your hand when you get off the train. Germs. Which brings us neatly on to germs. No, not Germans. Germs. Londonites are not known to share Germans around, but they do like to share germs. Unlike the selfish Southeast Asians who wear face masks to hoard their germs, Londonites are a more open, charitable people, and sharing germs is common practice. If you do not have a germ, like flu or a testicular atrophy, simply use London's transport system. You do not even have to ask. A Londonite will be happy to pass on a germ or two in no time at all. A Londonite with a germ is easy to spot. They always wait for the most crowded train before embarking. They will make no attempt whatsoever to cover their mouth or to move their head away from other people when contaminated. In fact, they are likely to wipe their face before touching as many handles, poles, seats and dongles as they can before disembarking. Is a germ spreader near you? If yes, take a deep breath. Congratulations, you are a Londonite now. Pass on the good news. Is your stop coming up? If so, prepare to disembark from the train carriage. When exiting the train onto the station platform, you will hear a voice say, Mind the gap. Every station has a gap, short for generally annoying person. This individual is assigned by the Ministry for Underground Affairs to test the manners and forbearance of commuters. That test could be in the shape of a seemingly innocent-looking female office worker who steps onto the train without waiting for commuters to get off, a predatory elderly man who will pretend to fall asleep on a commuter and allow a pool of drool to collect on that commuter's shoulder, or a trainee chef with earphones the size of the Millennium Dome cupping either sides of his partially shaved head playing music so loud you can hear the rapper's lyrics about witches and buns. Be careful not to come into contact with The Gap or react to The Gap in any way as an altercation with The Gap may result in a fine, mandatory display of The Gap's kitchenware collection or arrest for breach of the peace. Keep your eyes fixed on an inanimate object or one of the many scraps of free newspaper provided if a passenger gets short on a journey. For a visual guide on how to behave, find the images of Vietnam soldiers suffering from the thousand-yard stare. Or for a more vacuous yet superior look, see Karl Lagerfeld's 2003 Winter Collection launch in Milan. And that ends this exhibit. Exhibit 3D, London Underground. And that concludes Exhibit 5N, The London 
underground. Exhibit 4B The Stations on the London Underground When you are travelling under London, you will notice the interesting names for the stops indicated on the platforms. They are not arbitrarily decided upon by a madman, as many think, like they are on the Paris Metro, but correspond to what is of interest above ground near the station's exit. The following is a selection of stations the inquisitive traveller is recommended to stop off at. I wouldn't bother with the other stations. Bond Street Bond Street is named after the famous spy Jimmy Bond. The stable in which he was born is still standing and is now a museum. Green Park Green Park is a must for nature lovers as it is the only park in London with green grass. All the other parks are, as nature intended, purple. Green Park is green because of the unique way the grass here photosynthesizes the sun's rays. Grass in this area absorbs the long wavelengths from the sun's rays, which are red, and the short wavelengths, which are blue, but rejects the green portions of the spectrum because it doesn't taste as nice, hence the green appearance. Scientists are unsure why this phenomenon occurs only here, but it could be down to the large amount of dog feces deposited in the park. People disorientated by the colour could purchase special glasses at a park kiosk for £70. Oxford Circus Oxford Circus is where the professors and college deans from the capital of academia come to perform high-wire acrobatics for the amusement of Londonites. Canary Wharf Canary Wharf is where the city's delicacy is still shipped in by boat. Canaries, of course, preferring not to fly. Be sure to stop off and try many of London's specialities here. There's canary and chips, canned canary and beans, canary pie and jellied canary. The full canary is a particular favourite of mine, consisting of eggs, sausages, beans and black pudding stuffed into a whole canary, which is then fried and served on toast. More on London cuisine later. Shepherd's Bush Shepherd's Bush is where farmers from outlying districts display their topiary skills. Bush trimming is a highly rated skill in England and shepherds are particular masters at maintaining their bushes. West Ham West Ham is home to the world's largest cheese market. Here you will find the finest cheeses from the West Country, like the famed Pink Chester and Crumbly Wilton. Western cheese has a unique nuttiness due to the diet of the badgers that provide the milk. If you prefer your cheese to be a little saltier, head to East Ham. Badgers in the East are fed a diet of fish from the North Sea, which is east of London. Barking Barking is home to Europe's largest lunatic asylum. Many of the people who succumb to strenuous, strenuous agoraphobic avian disorder are housed here. 
strenuous agoraphobic adiance disorder, Canary Wharf. Canary Wharf is where the city's delicacy is shipped in by boat. Canaries, of course, preferring not to fly. Be sure to stop off and try many of London's specialities here. There's Canary and chips, canned Canary and beans, Canary pie and jellied Canary. The full Canary is a particular favourite of mine, consisting of eggs, sausage, beans and black pudding stuffed into a whole Canary, which is then fried and served on toast. More on London cuisine later. Shepherd's Bush Shepherd's Bush is where farmers from outlying districts display their topiary skills. Bush trimming is a highly rated skill in England, and shepherds are particular masters at maintaining their bushes. West Ham West Ham is home to the largest cheese market. Here you'll find the finest cheeses from the West Country, like the famed Pink Chester and Crumbly Wilton. Western cheese has a unique nuttiness due to the diet of the badgers that provide the milk. If you prefer your cheese to be a little saltier, head to East Ham. Badgers in the East are fed a diet of fish from the North Sea, which is east of London. Barking Barking is home to Europe's largest lunatic asylum. Many of the people who succumb to strenuous agoraphobic adium disorder are housed here. Strenuous agoraphobic avian disorder, or SAAD, is a fear of encountering a pigeon in an open space. Be wary of using the district line between the hours of 9 and 12 p.m. on Saturdays, as this is when asylum res residents are allowed out to use the line above ground being off limits, of course. There have been cases of pigeon attacks on the underground, but they are extremely rare. And that concludes the guide to exhibit 5K, the stations of the London Underground. Exhibit 3A, the London Pub. First invented by Lord Beaverpinch Pint, the pub, short for Public Urination Bar, was London's first public urinal. The red telephone urinal box was not introduced until the 1800s. The original pub was a simple adobe structure with a row of pits, over which a single plank, or bar, was suspended. This allowed gentlemen to toilet in private without the need to retreat to their castle. Lord Beaverpinch realised that gentlemen could drink ale while they waited to pass water, which meant, due to the volume he supplied, that they soon needed to urinate again, thus perpetuating the cycle and keeping the gentlemen at the pub. Word of this lucrative enterprise soon spread, and pubs sprung up all over the city. Now the urination part is confined to tar rooms at the rear of the pub, and the bar itself has been turned into a counter where alcohol is exchanged for money. Some bars do still allow you to urinate at them, but ask first, or you may be reprimanded. The pint, however, remains. Let's go order a pint now. 
To attract the attention of the barmaid or barman, simply clench a banknote of any denomination tightly in your right hand, extend the arm and waggle it up and down in front of your face, making a stabbing motion. This will indicate to the bartender that you wish to purchase a pint. Do you have their attention? When you do, say slowly and clearly, pour me a pint of port, please, pretty, and pick me a packet of pickled pork. Say it. Pour me a pint of port, please, pretty, and pick me a packet of pickled pork. Say it again, just in case they didn't understand you. Good. Now get ready to hand over your money. It should cost no more than £73.17. Do you have your pint of port and a packet of pickled pork? Good. You may imbibe at the bar or sit down on a stool or chair provided. Make sure that the stool or chair is unoccupied first. Londonites rarely allow other people to sit on them and cockneys only allow chickens to perch on their laps. If you wish to engage with other pub patrons, it is important to note that Londonites interact according to strict etiquette. Firstly, look around and see how the other patrons are interacting. Interesting, aren't they? If there is an individual you wish to converse with, firstly make eye contact with them. Then lift your chin by 12 degrees and make an upwards jerking motion. If you can, lift your eyebrows as you do this, for greater emphasis. Then say, What you looking at, mate? What you looking at, mate? This will indicate to the patron that you wish to start a conversation and make friends. Maintain eye contact at all times, as looking away is perceived as a dismissal and may result in the loss of face for the other patron. If he rejects your advances, don't despair. There are likely others who would appreciate the opportunity to converse with you. Female Londonites are more approachable and understanding of etiquette failures from out-of-towners. So try a female. Is there a female in the pub? If there is, approach one. If she is with a male chaperone, all the better. Start with the words, All right, darling. All right, darling. Convention dictates that she turn her head or even her whole body away from you. This indicates that she is interested in starting a conversation. Once she has done this, follow with the words, You are well fit. Fancy a shag? You are well fit. Fancy a shag? A shag is a small measurement of alcohol, as a female bladder cannot cope with the volume of liquid in a pint glass. If she declines the offer of a shag, return to the male chaperone instead and try to make friends with him, with the phrase I have mentioned earlier. What you looking at, mate? What you looking at, mate? Then invite him to the bar where you can buy him a drink. To do this, you simply say, Come on then. Come on then. Still no luck? Never mind.
Why not turn your attention to the brightly coloured machine flashing in the corner of the pub? Can you see one? These are called fruit machines. Fruit machines are placed in pubs by the Ministry of Social Inadequacy and Vitamin Deficiency for those incapable of engaging in stimulating conversation. A failure of public urinal bar etiquette is normally attributed to a poor diet. In exchange of coins placed in the slot, the machine will assess the patron's level of vitamin deficiency. It does this by analysing the individual's choice of press buttons. Go ahead and try it. Notice the three wheels with varying symbols in the centre of the machine and the flashing buttons underneath them. Press the buttons to make the wheel spin. Choose wisely as you may be prescribed a kumquat. And nobody likes eater of kumquats. Is the machine flashing and making noises? Have coins come out of a tray at the bottom of the machine? No. You may be fortunate enough not to suffer from vitamin deficiency. If, however, there are coins in the tray, you may exchange them for a basket of fruit at the bar. Once in possession of a fruit basket, proceed to eat the fruit. Do you notice a difference? Are you becoming more interesting? It is scientifically proven by scientists, so it should work. By now your bladder is likely to be full. You cannot just use a pub toilet, however. Tradition dictates that you must first ask the bartender. Get their attention and ask them, Are you taking the piss? Are you taking the piss? If they are, proceed to the toilet. There are normally two toilets in pubs. One for men, and one for women. If you are a man, use the toilet indicated by the man symbol on the door. If there isn't one, simply head through the more fragrant smelling door. Once inside, you should be presented with several porcelain troughs, which you use to toilet. Do not sit on them. Use the cubicles for faeces extraction instead. If someone is already using a trough, Simply stand next to them. You may engage in polite conversation whilst using the trough. Londonites tend to compliment each other on the size of their members. If you wish to do this, simply lean over to observe your neighbour's penis and, irrespective of its dimensions, say, Come here often, big boy. Come here often, big boy. If your neighbour is considerate, he will return the favour. Normally, a pub will leave a complimentary mint cake in the trough as a gift for your patronage. You can take it if you wish. Washing your hands afterwards is also optional. And that concludes our guide to Exhibit 7J, The London Pub.